welcome to our podcast series, Identity Dialoguing with the Other and Myself. I'd like to welcome Dr. Susan Perry, who is a professor at the American University of Paris and Director of Graduate Studies in International Affairs and Human Rights and a Specialist in Human Rights. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Good morning. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, we wanted to talk about how identity influences conflict and global conflict. And I wanted to start with a question about how you think identity shapes conflicts in the world, and if you could give some examples. Well, identity is a, is subjective. It's a construct. We all identify with usually more than one group. We have multiple levels of identity in our lives. Groups that enter into conflict are groups that feel that their needs are not being met based on their identity in most cases. A good example of this are farmers in Syria who didn't have access to water for their crops and who lost their land and moved into cities and were essentially um, uh, unaccounted for uh, by urban populations. You have ethnic conflicts, you have religious conflicts. The war in Ukraine is actually a conflict about two different identities, Russian identity and Ukrainian identity. And I think wherever we uh, see conflict in society in one form or another, it always ties back to a sense of identity. So I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more about how identity has played into the instigation and ongoing battle and support of the war in Ukraine. Both, it's an interesting war because it is a war that reminds us that the world not long ago was bipolar. Uh, we had a bipolar world, we're working towards a multipolar world, and suddenly a bipolar conflict erupts in the middle of this new construction. In case the case of Ukraine, the Russians have a, have a, a memory, uh, most of it invented, of Rusinkiev, uh, begun by, by mobile Vikings intermarrying with local populations, you know, in the, in the ninth century. Um, as Russia itself began to move northward, uh, Kiev and the surrounding area continued to be turned towards Europe, and those who migrated northwards were turned towards the Eurasian continent. So you had a very distinct development of identities uh, between two peoples whom we now consider Russian and Ukrainian today. The problem is that the Russians always considered Ukraine little Russia. The languages are very similar. They have a similar history, a similar faith. And so consequently, when Vladimir Putin chose to invade Ukraine in February of 2022, and there's no other word for this than invasion, he had to create stories of threatened identity in order to convince his own Russian population that this war was worth the sacrifice in lives. The Ukrainians, many of whom were Russian-speaking, including the president, suddenly had to become more Ukrainian than those who were Ukrainian-speaking and promote a identity that allowed them to defend their uh, recognized territory at great cost as well. And so the entire conflict is based around questions of identity, and there is an omnipresent threat of genocide in this conflict where one side tries to wipe out the identity of the other and merge that identity with their own. And so it's a very um, deep-rooted conflict. It's a very dangerous conflict. 
And the two sides that have grown up around this conflict are also very much uh, invested in their sense of identity. So I was wondering how um, a little bit around the support of uh, the Ukrainian people, how the NATO alliance as a group identity and perhaps as a Western identity has played into either fueling the conflict. We know that Finland has just ascended to NATO. Um, uh, how this is how this has actually influenced. Uh, the it's an interesting problem. You know, Finland has a long history with Russia. Uh, they had two wars against Russia, 39 and I believe 41. They lost a good 10% of their population, about 20% of their territory in those wars. So it's perfectly understandable that in the current context, if they want to remain an independent country, they would want to join NATO. Perfectly, very long border with Russia. Um, NATO is founded on two principles. One is military, the other is human rights, and most of us forget that. Um, and so NATO has an obligation to uphold and promote human rights, regardless of Article 5 and its military commitments to its member states. In the case of Ukraine, uh, there's been a very long discussion. It began with Vladimir Putin's Munich speech in 2008, indicating his displeasure with the fact that NATO um, was encouraging Ukraine to become to move away from Russia and to become more democratic. And again, the 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 majority of Ukrainians support um, some kind of loose or official membership in Europe as as opposed to membership in a Russian Federation of any kind. So this is not uh, a concoction of Ukrainian leaders. It's the general sentiment in most of Ukraine outside of the Russian speaking areas in the east. So my Guess is that Ukraine picked up the banner um, because the threat of an invasion poses a threat to all of the small countries in Eastern Europe. And to let this invasion go unchecked, first of all, the Ukrainians were going to defend themselves, to let it go unchecked was a threat to the security, a perceived threat and probably an actual threat to the, the security of, of Europe. Of course, Russia is invading because they perceive NATO as a threat to Russian security. So this is a gigantic misunderstanding based on, on incompatible identities. Right. So I was wondering if we, how we could work with a dynamic definition of identity to contribute to resolving conflict. So I've done a lot of work uh, in Africa, had about 20 missions uh, in post-conflict situations to work with women's groups who were often on opposing sides of the conflict uh, to rebuild civil society after conflict because all of these women and men wanted the same things. They wanted to be able to feed their families, to educate their children, to have a future in their country. And so they were willing to compromise on certain issues of identity. What often happens in post-conflict situations, however, is that one problematic identity is repressed. And most players, including those who are defeated, agree to assume, often don't have a choice, a new identity. Sometimes all sides can give up a pre-existing identity and assume a new one. Sometimes it's just one side. And this leads to a lot of tensions in the country going forward. Um, in the case of Ukraine, after the war, when the war ends, because it will eventually end, all Ukrainians will speak Ukrainian. No one will speak Russian after that point in time. And anyone who is sympathetic to Russia will have to leave 
the country because they won't have a role to play. And I think that's unfortunate because part of Ukraine's richness was its ties to Russia. But by the same token, you know, the United States tomorrow is not going to invade Great Britain and say, well, you know, this is the mothership. This is where our civilization came from. And so we should we should occupy this territory. That's not possible. And so it was unreasonable to think that one could eliminate or uh, put Ukrainian culture and identity on a leash. That was Vladimir Putin's uh, mistake. And of course, it's an egregious violation of international law. <clears throat> but by the same token, the Ukrainians are going to lose part of their cultural richness uh, in eliminating one part of their identity. But they really haven't been given that much of a choice given the circumstances. So I hear what you're saying is that identity is fluid and it's Extremely. political in one part um, and that it, it can be a moving target with regards to what we decide will maintain peace or resolve conflict. And it's up to the negotiators or the facilitators to negotiate this new identity. It could be. It, it, you know, I'm really interested going forward in the role, for example, that social media will play in helping reconstruct this new identity. The new Ukrainian identity will be exclusively European. There will be no room for Eurasia in this identity. Again, according to people like Timothy Snyder, a scholar at Yale, Ukrainian identity has always been European. Uh, as opposed to Eurasian. But this will reinforce that. Um, what I fear is perhaps less tolerance for those who are not extremely patriotic, those who refused to fight in the war, those who fled, for example. So it will be an identity much like the US identity after World War II, where women were, after contributing in factories and to the war effort, were sent back into the kitchen uh, and had no real role to play outside of a highly constructed female identity uh, until that, of course, broke apart in the late 1960s, thank goodness. <laughs> um, so it, it, it may be an identity that will be um, constructed in such a way as to be less flexible than it was before the war, I think, again, that will be a loss. Russian identity is a mystery to me. I don't know how Russians will come to terms with such a wasteful war. The United States is engaged in endless wasteful wars. Iraq is a great example. We left a mess behind us when we finally withdrew. Um, it, it's, it's unclear how Russia will hold together its sense of Russian identity after having expended so much international goodwill and economic capital on this conflict. Right. So I was wondering if you had some examples of tools that have been used to resolve conflict that address identity. So what the best tools, I think, are tools that center on the future. So you work with children. For example, there are officially between 16 and 17,000 deported Ukrainian children who have been sent into Russia. We know there are 43, according to a recent Yale study, 43 re-education centers, some as far away as, as Siberia and Eastern Russia. Um, some of these children are going to be adopted into loving families and be very happy. Some of them are going to remain in camps where there simply be pawns in an exchange strategy. Um, most of them cannot be happy having been deported so far away from their place of origin. But it would be absolutely wonderful if after the war, children who have experienced this in Ukraine can be returned to Ukraine. But if they have ties, emotive ties to Russia that the European Union, for example, could fund 
annual reunions between Russian and Ukrainian families that love the same child. Those kinds of projects focused on children that bring together two sides of the conflict are perhaps the best tools we have going forward. Income generating projects are wonderful. Uh, skills training projects are wonderful. Rebuilding projects generally, rebuilding schools, hospitals, community centers, all that is wonderful. But the most, um, the, the tool that strikes the deepest, the, you know, is perhaps the most successful would be tools that focus on how to educate children going forward. This is where Bosnia has failed. By separating out children in educational programs, they don't learn how to live together. And so what was once Yugoslavia is no longer possible. And again, identity becomes narrow. And so we need to have programs that allow Ukrainians to accept the fact that most Russians would have been happier without this war and to find a way to move forward and recognize that culture. So that brings me to my final question, which is, how can we live with differences in identity and peace? Well, the way you and I have, have carried on our friendship, right? <laughs> it's it's um, always being curious about the other. And so education systems need to foster curiosity. Uh, one of the dangers, of course, of, of AI is that we'll, we may lose our sense of curiosity, particularly in the classroom. Foster a sense of curiosity about the other, cultural exchanges, physics, exploration, literature translated into the other language, uh, art, joint art projects, joint music projects, you name it. But we need to foster that sense of curiosity because with curiosity comes acceptance, with acceptance comes tolerance and eventually friendship. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that excellent uh, conversation and elucidating uh, a topic that's in our news today and uh, and giving us a macro perspective. It's been my pleasure and my best wishes to all Ukrainians and Russians who are hoping for peace as soon as possible. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Safran Global Health. It complements workshops that have been designed to create a safe space to talk about identity and to create a sense of belonging. If you want to learn more or get involved, please visit our website at www dot safranglobalhealth dot com.